This is Media Moves, the podcast for executives to make sense of the perpetually moving media landscape. I'm Adam Ryan. Today, I talk with Bennett Richardson, president of Protocol, former executive director of partnerships at Politico, and the co-founder and CMO of the dating app Hinge. Partnerships are in the DNA of every media company. A great sales team elevates a brand and is additive to a business. Bennett gets into how being a marketer helped him be a great sales leader and has allowed Protocol to build a world-class sales organization. And how subscription businesses are the tail that normally wags the dog and how diversification of a business enables you to create a great experience for your audience. Bennett holds nothing back in this episode, so let's dive in. We executives usually juggle a dozen different priorities. I know I certainly do. That's why I love how easy sale through makes it to run marketing campaigns that drive a crazy amount of value in less time. They're the perfect platform to turn your curious users into loyal customers. Head to salethrough.com to check them out or via the link in the description. Bennett, it's so good to have you on. Thanks for uh, taking time. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Of course. Uh, we've been, I would call Twitter uh, friends and followed each other for a while, but uh, so happy to finally finally have you on the podcast and tell the world a little bit more about the Bennett Richardson story. Well, thank you. And, th- and congrats on the uh, not so new now, but uh, recent launch of, of Workweek. Big fan of what you guys are doing. Really appreciate that. Thanks so much. Uh, so just to dive in here at Media Moves, we we start with our first segment, which is tactical breakdowns. And the only way to do that is to talk about what you're world class at and get in the weeds of how you did it. And for me, when we've got to know each other and, and talk and I hear about your experience currently as, as president of uh, Protocol, I think you're world class at creating partnerships, whether it's through advertising, business development, but not making them transactional. Historically, sales teams have been treated I think we all know, you know, have this car salesman reputation. And the reality is that that's not how you've handled it, but that's a skill set. And and I think you're world class at it. So would love to dive in. Like one, how did you get started? You were at Politico for six years plus. How did you get into that? What influenced your strategy with working on the biz dev side? Yeah, great question. So um, taking it back to that beginning, um, I started in media on the sales and business development side, but didn't start my career on that side of things. I spent a decade or so more in, in marketing communications. So started out working at a, a number of different agencies in Washington, D.C., and then uh, helped launch a company called Hinge, a dating app. I was a co-founder and CMO there for, for a few years. And so brought some different perspective into the media world um, when I joined. And I think that was actually one of the reasons why I was hired at at Politico. Um, When I joined Politico in 2013, they were going through, I think kind of the first big jump or the first big like turning of the page into a new chapter. Um, And there's been a couple of the growth of, of Politico over the years, but that was really a moment where Politico was going from being the fastest, newest, biggest, baddest DC Capitol Hill political publication to all of a sudden starting to get a lot more national recognition, getting some more attention from a national audience. And then with that, getting some more opportunities to pitch and enter conversations about bigger, more comprehensive partnerships with different kinds of brands on a bigger, longer term, more integrated type capacity. And so I think with that needed to come a mindset shift. And you know, a lot of 
media sales and a lot of ad sales, you know, when I joined the industry tended to be a little bit more transactional. I think it was still focused on a slightly older school mindset of renting an audience. So if you go to a media company because they have a really great first party relationship with a particular audience, whether that's a policymaker in the case of Politico or a business decision maker in the case of another publication, uh, or you know, in, in our case now with, with you know, protocol, a, a more tech-centric business decision maker, and you go to that media company to promote your products and services to that audience by kind of renting space and renting time with that audience. And, and because of that, it tended to be pretty transactional. It was about, you know, almost TV and print, those origins of what are the rate cards and what are the different sizes and placements and things like that. And for me, I came to the industry not having ever sold like that, only having ever pitched and presented and sold much more creatively and much more relationship and kind of consultative approach when you're working at an agency and trying to win business and things like that. And so I think bringing that perspective, having been on the other side of the desk, working with clients and working with brands to build some of those marketing strategies, I think I just approached that world a little bit differently where I wanted to still obviously build the business and build that bottom line, but came about it through just a more consultative approach, I think, of really saying, what are the problems that we can solve? What are the cool ideas that we can build together that still result in you know, a really great business win for, uh, for the publication? And so that's really how I came about joining Politico, was taking that a little bit more creative, a little bit more consultative approach to uh, the media partnership universe and bringing that to, to that role. I think one of the most misunderstood facts about media salespeople specifically is that they're normally one of the the successful ones are some of the most creative people in the world. Really, they're marketers that know how to position for the brand and they can adapt to their clients of and think like a marketer. And I think you being CMO of a dating app is no coincidence that you ended up being an amazing sales leader for a DC-based political-focused company shows that creativity, no matter your background, like it tells stories and that's what like you do. And it's a consultative front, but there's something to say with price, you know, the transaction has a strong correlation. I'll give you a tangible example. We had a very shitty renewal rate at the hustle. If a client spent under a certain amount of money and if they spent over that, the renewal rate was through the roof. It got to the point where if it was like if the budgets weren't there, you treated the ones beneath as transactional, and if it was above, you treated them consultatively. Is that how it is for you? Do you think like a bigger influence is almost budgets? Is that enables that, or do you think it's on the actual individual selling? I think it can be both. I think that there's certainly a transactional nature to some campaigns and to some moments, but ideally, you're entering into that off of a really high baseline of trust. If you're working with somebody who needs that quick transaction, it's because they have a very clear need that you're helping them solve for, but you actually have a much bigger, longer term, deeper relationship. And they're able to come to you quickly and say, hey, I already know so much about what you guys are good at, about who you reach, about what your strengths are, that I, I've already sort of built that fluency around your publication and your audience that I can say, hey, 
I know that this is going to be great for my brand and this is going to be great for my campaign. Is that something you can help me figure out quickly? So I think that that building, like if you can build that baseline relationship of trust and nuance with someone, then you're able to get into those really opportunistic transactional moments in and out of those quickly. So I think of it in that part for sure. I think it also depends on the life cycle of the company a little bit. I think one of the things that's been a secret to our success at Protocol in these first two years, we just turned to like two or three weeks ago, beginning of February. And I think a secret to our success has been taking that creative consultative approach to even a small pilot campaign and trying to be really smart and saying, hey, we're going to give you the same level of thought and the same level of strategy and the same level of creativity to a initial smaller campaign that we would if this was a big year long, you know, much, much larger uh, endeavor. And I think that that, you know, especially for a new brand, a new kid on the block, that allows you to build some real credibility. And while you your spend may only be at a certain level with a partner, your sort of emotional spend is much, much higher because that relationship is much, much deeper. And so I think you may, because of your size, because of your, your newness, because of where a client is in terms of spending or in terms of budget cycles or whatever else, you may be only able to tap into a small budget in that very first relationship. But if you're able to build a much deeper relationship in terms of understanding and strategy and creativity, then that's what unlocks those much larger opportunities down the road. Emotional spend is such a great term. I've never used that. I think I just came up with that. So we can That's good. Uh, Because if you've ever been a part of one of those deals, you feel that, right? You feel that marketer that maybe maybe their budgets are just small because they're only three months into their job. There's a lot of things, right? Like, and you feel the blood, sweat, tears of like the emotional, like, I'm proud of this one. Let's do this. Like, and, and it, uh, and then you feel that on the sales side too, right? It's a, it's a positive experience. Uh, there's you guys, and I can speak for my own self here, but are you all struggling at all hiring sales reps right now in this environment? We haven't. We've had some good luck. We've actually just amidst a wave of sales hiring. We have uh, one great sales director who joined us just a week or two ago. We've got two more joining us for the next couple of weeks. And we're hiring, I think, for, for another position right now. So far, it's been, we've had good success. And I think we've had good success for two reasons. One, I think that there is a lot of a lot of change happening in media. That's not a you know novel thought for anybody listening to this podcast, certainly. But I think because of all the change and all the disruption that's happening in media, it's a part of this larger great resignation, which is really, I think it's a, almost a misnomer. It's more of like a great rethink than it's a great resignation, right? It's folks saying, hey, do I value the time that I'm spending at this organization, right? And I think so on the media side of things, I think that Folks reconsidering where they are, if they're at a larger, older, maybe a little staler institution in terms of that side of media, maybe there's an exciting opportunity to have a slightly bigger impact and really leave your fingerprints on a smaller, earlier stage organization like like Protocol. So I think on that side, we have some great success sort of toe-to-toe right. recruitment. I think it's actually the same thing. On you the have like side. almost like the legacy infrastructure while having the newness of a new property. It's like yeah. really, it's actually... A, it's a good balance. Um, yeah. And, and then I think on the other side, we've had a lot of our most successful people, both at Politico and at Protocol, not unlike myself, actually come from non-traditional sales backgrounds. It's folks who have been that agency leader, been that marketing leader, um, been a communications expert uh, in their career in different places. And I think 
seeing that and understanding, again, kind of going back to my previous point, a little bit of that empathy of having been on the other side of the desk to say, I can really understand multiple layers of what my client's dealing with on a emotional level, internally with their bosses, externally with their client, all those pressures, just like knowing all the the soft skills, that kind of EQ of the business, being able to find people, you have to find somebody with that killer instinct that's really a self-starter that has that entrepreneurial spirit. We've had a lot of success also sort of bring people into media for the first time, but saying you, you've you worked with media organizations for many, many years. You understand how we work. You understand you've probably maybe been a client of ours. We have a couple of folks on the team who are or previous protocol advertisers who are now, you know, working with us and, and seeing that be able to navigate the industry for the first time, but do it from a really savvy way because you've been a, di- been a part of a different corner of the industry has been, been an area of success for us too. I've started to create a profile for converting marketers to ad sales um, because I think it's like it's a great jump in comp normally. But also like when you think like a marketer, you can sell to a marketer. And I mean, uh, I think that's that's a takeaway that I found so interesting. Your background being CMO of a consumer dating app and co-founder and having that having that visibility of like understanding storytelling virality, like what does it take to build a consumer app? In many ways, that's what makes a talented story on even on the B2B side. Jumping forward a little bit with that, the world of ad sales catches a lot of grief. Uh, it's a lot of competition. I'm sure like I never even consider like Workweek a competitor of protocol, but like we definitely share advertisers, which means like hypothetically we're competitive, right? How do you differentiate yourself? Like what's the baseline? If you had to give advice for someone who's like, I want to create the next media company, and they're asking themselves, like, well, how the fuck do I make money? What is your advice of differentiating yourself on the ad sales front? It's a great question. And I think that that differentiation is, it has to sort of pull through from both sides. And I think that, yep. you know, any anyone who's going to do business with you as an advertiser is also wrapping their heads around being a reader or being a subscriber or being an evangelist and supporter of some kind. Right. And so I think that there's there's those multiple layers. And so I think for that, it's also really about just that unique, like what unique part of a market or an audience or an industry or a perspective do you really own? And I think that idea of ownership of really saying, I'm not coming to a commoditized dime a dozen media property, but I'm actually going somewhere that has a unique view of the world that has a unique relationship with a particular kind of person or professional that I care about, that core kernel of credibility is extremely important. And I think you just need to build upon that layers of additional credibility around other things, whether it's your particular expertise on a certain kind of creative content marketing solution or other kinds of you know things that you're offering to a partner, whether it's your events abilities or your content abilities or things like that. But I think it comes back down to that like core kernel of credibility around, is this the best possible partner to serve as kind of that matchmaker with the audience that I care about? Yeah. Um, and I think that, that that context is so important, especially because there is so much fragmentation, there is so much growth happening in media. There are a lot of places you can go in every industry to advertise and promote your products and services. You want to be the place that has the freshest, deepest, smartest, most authentic relationship with that audience that you care about. 
And so I think that that has been a big part for us of really where do we carve out a unique value proposition for protocol. It's been this idea that we're, we're creating a tech publication. We're creating a tech publication from the publisher of Politico. And so the idea there of what does that actually mean? We're really insider focused, really executive focused, just like Politico has always been in politics and policy. But we're taking that perspective into tech where there hasn't often been a purely you know, insider executive focused publication. You've got a lot of business publications, a lot of publications that are written for investors or written for engineers, but maybe protocol has a slightly different angle where they're trying to reach tech executives and business executives that are making big decisions around this industry. It's carving out both in your overall you know, vision for the, for the company and for the publication, as well as really owning your relationship with an audience and really understanding that, that is, has allowed us to, to carve out that kind of unique value proposition with um, both with readers and, and with advertisers. Yeah. And like it's using, uh, we've talked about storytelling before as a superpower of someone else on, on the, on the pod, but it really is. It's, it's comprehensive storytelling from day one of like, you just saying right here, right? Like protocol is for the smartest people in tech. We're writing for the executives here. We're investing in, like that creates your story. And I've talked about this in the past, but then pricing creates a story, right? And solutions that you're offering. You mentioned events. When you package up deals today, how often is it omni-channel where like it's not a digital, like let's take like the buckets of digital ads to content, uh, branded content to like in real life events. Are you putting more and more packages together? Do you see any like trends or takeaways there? Yeah, no, we really are. And, and going back to one of your earlier questions, I mean, a huge number of our partnerships, even smaller ones are omni-channel and they are us saying, let's find even a pretty lightweight way to get some content to be a part of your initial pilot campaign. Let's find a way over the course of the past two years, obviously with the pandemic, virtual events have been a big part of what we do. Even today in kind of late stage COVID, we're still seeing a thousand plus live attendees to a lot of our virtual events, which I think is just a great endorsement that's crazy. We are hitting things that you. people actually want to yeah. want to pay attention to. And yeah, and so that in that sense, you know, to your question, a huge amount of the work that we do is omnichannel. It is, I think, about being smart about what you deploy, not overpricing something just because you're packaging a bunch of stuff into it, but actually saying, hey, here's the smart solution for a partner right? and figuring out that um, maybe they don't need some you know, quarter million dollar content experience that might be the kind of thing you'd get from a T brand at the New York Times, but maybe there's a really smart, really tailored, editorially focused brand content play, that's a fraction of that in terms of investment that you can complement with some smart newsletter distribution with a you know thought leadership opportunity through things like protocols, brain trust community that you can complement with a virtual event that doesn't have all the same expenses of a live event and being able to put those things together. So yeah, that omni-channel approach is really important. I come from that more storytelling and creative content marketing background, both with Hinge and then part of my time at Politico was building up Politico's brand studio, Politico Focus. And so I think even when we're doing a fairly straightforward partnership with a client that might only have a couple of channels or a couple of products, I think we're still trying to take a very storytelling arc approach to it about saying, hey, we've got these couple of different placements. How are we really smart about how we roll out your story and your narrative across those? I'm a big believer in the power of niche audiences. 
Who is paying attention is more important than how many people are paying attention. Sailthrough is the perfect partner for executives who want to drive value for the very best people in their audience. I love their focus on maximizing engagement while you scale, so you can build meaningful relationships with the people who actually move the needle for your business. Head to sailthrough.com, that's S-A-I-L-T-H-R-U.com to check them out or visit the link in our description. Brand Studio. Hottest thing going right now, in my opinion. Uh, it's the trend that uh, Morning Brews made it pretty popular that they have a studio and it's started to catch on with startups, which for me, I, I think studios have been around for forever. It just startups very rarely invested in two, three-year-old, four-year-old companies very rarely started to build that out. What's your thought process? How much of the creativity of the campaigns come from your sellers versus your studio versus if you have like creative consultant, like how, how have you all structured that? No, it's a good mix. And, and look, I think we've entered a really interesting phase of content as a part of the business. When we started um, Politico Focus back in like 2015, 2016, it was a real gold rush showpiece kind of moment for brand content. We were building out a brand studio in DC, focused on politics and policy, but really cribbing from the success of some of the really big folks like the T-brands of the world, who had essentially been serving as creative agencies, building out these beautiful microsites. Like you're building out this experience that's immersive and parallax and full screen and animated and doing all these crazy 3D or 360 or all sorts of stuff. And those are extremely expensive to build but they're the kinds of things that win awards and the kinds of things that end up on the, the top of the list for that marketer's achievements you know, over the course of, of the year. And so we were translating some of that into that space. I think we've exited largely. I mean, you still see a lot of those, but I think we've, we've in terms of the bread and butter of the business across the industry, we've gotten into a more healthy, continuous cadence of folks realizing that what, what a lot of B2B marketers have known for a very long time, which is that content can be really effective marketing and that having an opportunity to tell a deeper story, not just on your own website and product page, but in some of your partner's environments can be really effective. And so I think it's become a more day-to-day tactic for a lot of marketers. And because of that, they're looking for partners who can really resonate with their target audience, help them tell that story, help them profile an executive, help help them tell the story of a customer or a technology, but not do it in a way that's superfluous in terms of the kinds of, you know, design or tools that, that you're that you're building out. I think the work that Morning Brew is doing is great, uh, kind of cousin of ours in the Axel Springer family. And I think that, you know, a lot of the work that we do at Protocol is really rudimentary and really straightforward. And it's text-based, Q&A interviews, maybe paired with a fireside chat, you know, video from an event or, or standalone profiles of like, you know, like, I, like I mentioned, a customer or a case study or technology or things like that. That's the kind of stuff that our readers are coming to protocol for anyway. And so is this idea of native advertising, it's like, well, native to what? Like you have to be aware of that context. If you were a video platform, like no one's going to advertise a you know, blog post on YouTube for obvious reasons. The same thing I think should be true in the inverse. You shouldn't go into some text-based primarily website and put out some crazy metaverse experience. That's just not going to make sense. And so I think that being really effective for partners, I think a lot of marketers are a little more scrupulous today about what's really going to be effective for my audience and with a particular partner. Yeah, they're they're way smarter. 
today. Uh, and I'm biased because I've had to sell to smarter marketers, but it's a challenge. And like I was trained and groomed by someone who was in the industry for 30 years and they told me pretty close that it was pretty easy and now it's pretty brutal. Who are you admiring in the space? Like take a step back, what operators or companies are you're like, wow, that's a really great thing that you're looking up to. Really, it comes on all sizes, you know, in all, all shapes and sizes, you know, in different corners. I think you have to pay attention to a lot of different things that folks are doing in different parts of the industry and really try and learn from all of them. You know, I think the first person that comes to mind, honestly, WebSmith the two point, with 2PM. I, I love Web's work. I think that it's thinking on executive members and data sets and what are all the ways you can add value for some of your readers and your members beyond just that core core journalism and core content, I think is really, really smart. And so he's almost built a kind of a mini Politico type model within his own community of saying, hey, we're going to have different levels of deeper professional memberships and value and, and tools for those executive members. I think the work that he's doing is, is super, super interesting. Um, and so I definitely pay a lot of attention to the work that he does. And there's a lot of folks in in that space that are on that spectrum between an individual creator and a full-fledged you know, editorial institution media company and looking at players on different parts of that of that spectrum. I think, you know, you mentioned Morning Brew before. I think the creativity that they bring and, and really bringing a freshness to a, you know, a really curatorial product, I think is really smart. They built out something really impressive in terms of their their engine there. I think, you know, their their ad studio and the work that they're doing there on, on not just placing things in a newsletter, but writing that for you and really helping you amp up your return on ad spend and things like that is super, super impressive. And, you know, and on the other side, like our, our, our new, our other, uh, bigger new cousins at, at Business Insider. I mean, just watching the journey that they've had over the course of the past seven years, um, moving, continuing to move up market, breaking news, and really becoming a must-read in many capacities business publication. I think that the work that they've done has been been really interesting. I could talk about other other brands, you know, all day long. I mean, there's just so much. There's so much stuff to cover there. I uh, totally. I mean, I actually think we're in a great time of media right now because the barrier has been lowered so much. And it forced everyone to not only look at sustainable models, but great content. Yeah. We got to compete on both. And it's made for some great businesses. Uh, with Webb, my favorite reason to follow Webb is something he's not unafraid to say, which is he writes for the smartest people on his list. And he's like, I'm unapologetic if you don't understand what I'm writing because I'm not writing for you then. And Definitely. that halo of a circle uh, has allowed him to build the exact funnel that, that you've spoken about. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's a really good point in general of going back to what we were talking about before with knowing your audience is if you are a professional focused publication, then that sort of liberates you to start writing at that like 201 level and say that this is for the expert. This doesn't have to be, totally. I don't have to explain every single thing. One, one of my colleagues, David Pierce, who used to uh, work at the Wall Street Journal jokes that you know, when, whenever he used to have to write about uh, email, he would then have to, to define what email was. Because you had these policies of these, you know, big broadsheet publications where you needed to really write for the mass media consumer. Um, but going to a more insider publication, you can really dispense with that and get get right down to brass tacks. Yeah. I joke in my newsletter, I like don't want to tell anyone what acronyms mean, because if you don't know the acronyms I'm using, then you shouldn't be reading my newsletter. Exactly. It's kind of the same approach. All right. So one of the questions I love to ask folks is, what do you think the industry will look like in 12 months? One area that will come home to roost on both the creator side and the consumer side is just this explosion of subscriptions. It's starting to become, even from a reader perspective, 
unsustainable. And, you know, a, a friend of mine tweeted the other day that he loves supporting as many creators and journalists as possible that he loves. But at a certain point, if you're starting to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on individual five and $10 a month Substack subscriptions, at a certain point, that just reaches a, a level of absurdity, right? And I think that you are, uh, I've certainly heard this on different interviews with different, you know, Substack and indi other individual creators. Sometimes those renewal rates, renewal rates can start to get a little bit brutal, right? And we're entering that one year plus zone of a lot of that migration to that individual creator model. And I do think there'll be a reconsideration both on the consumer side and the creator side of a little bit of that. So I will be really curious to watch how that starts to pan out and if there is a a little bit of a settling when it comes to, all right, what do I want to pay for versus what was I willing to pay for for this first year, but really realizing where I'm getting the most value out of. So I think that that's, that's an area that I, I think for certainly 12 months is, uh, is something that I'm keeping an eye on. And then related to that, but, but, um, and this may, this may relate to your next question, but I think I love some of the ideas about how Web3 and NFTs can play out in media, but I just think it's really premature. I think it's going to take a long time for that stuff to really gain deep level of both utility and adoption in, in the industry. So let's take long, long approach. Five years, what's different, but what's the exact same? Five years, that's a long enough horizon where, you know, some of the things that folks like Jared Dicker talk about, I think could totally come true. Like, I think it's really interesting to think about the democratization of provenance tracking technology like blockchain and NFTs to be able to say, hey, this is a trackable, confirmed piece of IP from this creator and from this media organization. Like, I, I think there are some real kernels of really, really interesting ideas there that allow for folks to track and profit off of the proliferation and, and distribution of their, of their media and of their content and of their journalism in a way that's just not possible today. And especially thinking of, you know, off-platform distribution partnerships and so many of the kinds of partnerships that different um, media companies really grow on and benefit from, there's definitely a Web3 layer there that allows that to be more successful and more effective. I do think that's at least five years away because you have to get to an adoption level, right? You have to have that NFT creation like built into a CMS. Because to, to your point, what's going to be the very same? Like you still need to get into the workflow of a newsroom in order to be able to really allow these, you know, cutting edge technologies to really take hold in a lot, especially a lot of larger, you know, media institutions. And so I think that, that a lot of those muscles will still be the same. I think there will be a different, but a similar balance that we're encountering right now, where I think that you still are going to want really strong established media institutions that can hold governments and leaders and, and both public and private sector giants accountable while also being really supportive of some of those individual creators that, that just, you know, you really like and that help you do your job and help you, you know, navigate your industry. And so I think that to me, that, that mix, that diversity of institutions and creators, I think that will, there'll be a different shade of that that'll absolutely still be a part of the mix. Um, and then I think we're just seeing how that overall kind of operational side of, of media will continue to evolve. Yeah, we uh, we had Daisy uh, Alioto on, uh, which uh, she's the co-founder of Dirt, uh, which is a Web3 media company, and I uh, dug in with her about that and called BS where I thought BS was fitted. But she had an amazing point when I asked her the same question. She, she said, the people who are responsible for calling out journalists and like holding us accountable for like deep, unbiased research 
more than likely won't be in the Web3 ecosystem because it's too incentivized through some sort of financial play, more than likely. Uh, and I think that will be an interesting aspect is, you know, when we think about protocol and political and like institutions that hold our leaders accountable and educate us on what's happening in the world in this like trusted way, how much fandom of the NFT or, or uh, infrastructure are they able to capitalize on, if any? And like the whole church and state conversation becomes like a whole new beast. Absolutely. That's like a whole different version. I mean, today we have, you know, different creators and different writers who have their own funds and things like that, right? I mean, going further into that of having different tokens and having different NFTs, right? There's all these different business models. And I think it's up to any any media company, big or small, you know, as as you talk about, as Brian Morrissey talks about, like diversification is the name of the game. And yeah. folks need to find multiple revenue streams that work well for them, right? That are a good fit for their, not every media company is going to be good at ticketed events. Not every media company is going to be good for a, you know, $10,000 subscription, but finding the right mix, uh, some of that web three, some of that web two, I think is, is where folks are going to net out, you know, in a healthy business in the future. Yeah, uh, totally agree. And it leads to the last uh, segment, which is normally a reaction from Perpetual, the newsletter that I send out we were going to talk about subscriptions. You covered it quite a bit today. I wrote in my newsletter that essentially it was supposed to be the savior of media. And the reality is that I think uh, it's an outdated model that was created 400 years ago and readers at scale or of profitability using Substack or The Athletic as an example have proven that it's really not. You've mentioned that it's diversification. That's what I write in my newsletter as well. But do you have anything to add to that or any reaction to kind of these paywall metered subscription models that a lot of media companies have leaned into? Yeah, no, great question. And I, and I agreed with a lot of the stuff that you covered on in the newsletter, and it really resonated with me. I think two things uh, worth mentioning. I think that this idea of kind of building a glass house, I think is a really good point. Like you, you start to become beholden to the model and um, that can influence things in different ways. And I think that that, especially if you're playing with pricing, you're trying to understand how you fit into an ecosystem, there can be big, big shifts there that can be, you know, the, the attraction of subscriptions certainly is that foundational recurring revenue type platform. But when you're trying to experiment with different kinds of, you know, content or different formats that can have an effect, a roller coaster kind of effect on those subscribers. And, and you want to, you become beholden to subscribers that are expecting a certain thing from you, which I think can be a challenge. I also think uh, you made a good point about compromises that it is possible to allow the tail to wag the dog when you see, all right, what is the kind of content that my subscribers came to me for and want? And what is that kind of content that really ramps up subscriptions? And I do think there's, there's a risk, even at our largest, most established media institutions of creating a publication and an editorial point of view it may not lean right or left, but it leans toward that subscription dollar. And I think that that can be, you know, can be challenging. One thing that I used to think about a lot uh, was the explosion of New York Times digital subscriptions during the Trump administration yeah. and really seeing, um, you know, if you're able to add millions of digital subscribers, that affects the way that you cover the president and affects the way that you cover politics, whether you like it or not. And I, I guarantee you had 4 million digital subscribers during the first, obviously the first and only Trump term, that's going to affect the way that you cover things, whether you, whether you like it or not, because I guarantee you 99% of those new subscribers were not 
<laughs> Trump supporters or Trump voters. No. And so that that's going to it's going to twist you in in one way or another. And I think that that like being realistic about what is good for the publication as well as what is good for the business and understanding where does your credibility come from for Politico, for protocol, being a straight shooter, being unbiased, trying to be seen in Politico's case as, you know, both kind of left and right at different times in, in protocols. You're hated by everyone right. and we're, loved by exactly, everyone. Exactly, exactly. If, if, if people are telling us that we're too anti-tech sometimes and too pro-tech sometimes, then we're doing our job exactly right. You want to find that right balance where, you're, in our case, you're keeping people on your toes because that gives you that credibility. And so that really resonated with me in, in your piece there. I think that any business model, if you rely on it too heavily, can come to pull you in a direction that's not healthy. And so that's where I think going back to what we were talking about before, that diversification allows you to find a, a balance where you're not beholden to one thing or another and you're not letting it make those decisions for you. I normally push back on something, uh, but I, I agree with that statement actually like a thousand percent. And I don't think it's said enough in media. It actually, it means a lot to me that you like said that out loud because no matter what, um, there's a lot of your former boss, Jim Vanderheide, I wrote him in the newsletter is like wrote about the crap trap that can happen where if you, you know, you chase ad dollars, you could potentially basically create bad content clickbait. And that's what happened five years ago. And like, then you had the wave of subscription basically saying, well, now we're going to counter that. And there's someone in that room saying, how do we make more money? And uh, to not admit that is, I think it's happening a lot, but the reality is just not true. Uh, all right. Uh, well, it was so great to have you on, Ben, and I really appreciate the time. Your career has like been amazing to watch. You just recently promoted as president, so congratulations to that. And as we keep moving forward and building this, would love to have you come back again. Thank you so much, Adam. Congrats again on on building uh, Workweek and Perpetual and Media Moves. I don't know how you do all three at once, but uh, really love it. Love to see it and really rooting you guys on. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay ahead of media's next move, then make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. I'll see you next time.